what? So you can lift a lot of weights and eat raw kidneys and liver and testicles. That makes you more of a man than me because I can't. But I show up for my family every day and I love my kids and I love my wife. But if you want a committed person who shows up for you is loyal, you got to find someone who shows up for you and is loyal. It doesn't matter how much money they make or, or what, you know, how manly they are. I grew up in a chaotic household. I might feel comfortable in a chaotic relationship, but for some reason it never works out. And we get so surprised because chaotic relationships don't last. I love that people love attachment styles and it is such a good backdrop for us understanding ourselves. The one caveat before I get into what it can be is Welcome back, everyone, to Diary of an Empath. Today, we have a special guest joining us. Ellie Weinstein is a licensed clinical social worker, just like me, who is passionate about mental well-being and personal empowerment. And he is also the host of the amazing podcast, The Dude Therapist, which that's how we connected. I came mm -hmm. on your pod and we had a great conversation. And now we get to have a, a conversation about you and, and about what you do and anxiety. And I think that's something that we all deal with, including myself. And I was just saying on a previous podcast, I literally deal with anxiety every single day, especially when I'm doing this podcast. So I'm super excited to have this conversation and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, you were so great on my show and I, and I just loved your energy and, and all that you represent. So I'm so excited to be here and, and kind of tap into your audience and talk to you, talk to, to anyone who's listening um, in any way that hopefully can be helpful. So I'm really, I'm ready to be here. So I find it interesting that I was telling this to another guest and we had this conversation that it feels like at least my clients and even the cohorts that I have are mostly female. I don't feel like I get a lot of clients who are men or I don't see a lot of men in the space of healing, but more lately, I've been meeting more and more people in this space, but I would love to hear about your journey and how you got here because we just don't see men representing the healing space too often. And when I see it, I'm always so curious to know, how did you get here? And what do I need to understand about you and, and your past to understand who I'm talking to? Well, thank you so much for, for saying that. It is why I do what I do. It's why I want to grow bigger and have bigger impact to be their representation and to fill a space and a need. My, my story's pretty bland, pretty vanilla, but I will say that growing up, I had, a, I had ADHD and went to therapy as a kid. And I've always been someone who's been in touch with their feelings, aware of their feelings, kind of in tune to that. And I love people. I love learning about people, listening to people, talking to people, understanding them. And I've always been interested in what gets people to tick. I've always been into that, reading books and learning and, and educating myself and just listening. And I was always that kid at recess that would sit in the corner, and just listen to everyone's problems. That was me. And so I kind of just fell into this. It's something that I've always wanted to do in, in that, that, that way. And I always felt off or an outcast because I was such a feeling person, because I was the guy who knew how he felt and expressed it. I never felt kind of a part of the quote unquote norm. So I'm here for the feelings. I'm here for the emotions. And I love talking about it and love being real about it because vulnerability is the key to everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just a little bit of my journey. Um, you know, married, two kids, and I'm here for to talk about all that stuff that makes humans human. 
and not be afraid about it, whether I'm a guy, a girl, no matter how I identify, it doesn't matter. I'm here, uh, you know, you got to show up for for that realness of what it means mm-hmm. to be human. That That's kind of my story a little bit. I feel like for men, there's always been a stigma. I think we're getting better at it, but it's like this stigma of you can't show your emotions or you're weak. You shouldn't show your emotions or if you get therapy, you know, it's it's a bad look. I feel like we're starting to come out of that. But you mentioned that you were always sensitive growing up. And, you know, when I think of sensitivity, I think of emotional maturity and being in touch with that and understanding. And I feel like that's a strength. But a lot of people, specifically men, look at that as a weakness. What's your take on that? Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's just a classic societal, what is considered the norm at the time. You know, women were the feelers, the healers, the helpers, the at home kind of in touch with the kids and, you know, on that level of, of tapping into an emotional uh, wellness and awareness. The thing is that men have been feeling forever because we're human. And, and the fact that it's considered weak and vulnerable, it's like to me, the idea of an armor, if the view that the armor has a like a little hole, an ability to, to access and take advantage of it, um, when in reality, the armor is holding you back from your true self of, of, of showing people your true heart. You don't have to be, be so protective all the time. And I think there is this thing I know growing up when if a guy would share his emotions, you'd be considered feminine or mm-hmm. weak. And it would be used against you to make you feel less than or at the bottom of the, you know, social standard or that popularity. Uh, when in reality, because you have a big ego and you're good at sports, you're more of a man. No, mm-hmm. you, you don't. You're not. But I'm so happy that in the last, I would say, five, ten years, there have been a massive shift for a lot more men opening up and being real, whether it's because of Jay Shetty, Lewis Howes, Justin Baldoni. I think a lot of sports players opening up shows men that, oh my gosh, this person I idolize who looks like they have it all together and are so strong and so successful, they struggle with anxiety and depression. I feel feel similar. Oh my gosh, I'm not alone. I can share too, right? I think it's also that representation of men showing up and sharing, I think has been very helpful. And I will say, I just spoke to my wife about this. In the past year, I've had more men reach out to come to therapy than I've ever expected, as well as ever seen in my practice before. Do you feel like it's more com- they're more comfortable because you're a man? I, I definitely think so, but I do feel as myself when I go to therapy and I have a therapist. I like female therapists more. I feel more comfortable. I feel more comfortable not because I can't talk openly to a guy. It's something comforting about. Maybe it's because, you know, your mom or whatever it could be, mm-hmm. or, you know, having a wife or whatever it is, it's like a comfort space. But I think it is some connecting of like, well, you're a guy and I'm a guy. Maybe you can help me understand me as well as, you know, my podcast is called The Dude Therapist. It's because I'm a dude who's a therapist. And I think some people think that I'm the dude therapist, that I only work with dudes. I don't, but I think there is some semblance of camaraderie. That comes from a guy coming to therapy with a man. And you see that sometimes with uh, certain ethnicities and cultures. They go to the people that they feel connected to. You know, I get called often I'm Jewish. It's like, oh, I'm looking for a Jewish therapist because they'll understand me more. They can know what my background is or what my culture is or what my religion, you know, feels, you know, or things of that nature. Or people who have kids want to work with someone who might have kids. Or it's kind of just a connector that is a human-to-human relationship or a human-human connection. 
So I want to talk about anxiety, but I have things going in my head. Okay. So I feel like too, with women, we are kind of taught by society that we should be attracted to manly men, men who don't show emotions, men who have these traits of, you know, taking the lead and being the provider and doing these things that a quote unquote man should do. But I think that our idea of what a man is or what we've been taught by society, I think it's wrong. I think we got it wrong. And I think that's why a lot of women end up going towards men who are not necessarily the best for them. I just feel like that is being taught by society. And um, I'm, I would love to get your thoughts on that. If, you know, for me too, like growing, growing up, I was taught that love is associated with toxicity and really high highs. And mm -hmm. when I saw otherwise, it was, I started to like, for the first time, really start to evaluate my choices in mm -hmm. relationships. What yeah. are your thoughts on that? I love everything you're saying. And I think that it's so funny that if you actually, I specialize in relationships and I work with couples all the time, every day. And it's so funny that there's a standard of, of people want to feel secure and safe physically and financially and they also want someone who is feeling and loving and empathetic and caring and kind. And and I'm not saying you can't have your cake and eat it too. But if you're looking for the manly man, the ego, the bruiser, the intense buff, you know, kind of guy, you're you're you might get one thing, but you're not gonna get the other thing potentially. So you can't complain that you're not getting the other thing. If that's the choice you're choosing, it doesn't mean you can't have both. There could be a balanced way of both of them. And I think I'm pretty manly and I'm pretty emotional as well. So like, what do we consider manly? And I recently uh, heard something by uh, a comedian who was talking to that guy, the liver king. Mm -hmm. um, and, and he's like, what? So you can lift a lot of weights and eat raw kidneys and liver and testicles. That makes you more of a man than me because I can't. But I show up for my family every day and I love my kids and I love my wife and I do my work and I do my job. And you're more, you think you're more manly because you can lift heavier weights and, and eat testicles. Mm -hmm. And Liver King didn't answer. He mm -hmm. was like. I mean, at that point, it's a dick swinging contest. <laughs> exactly. So like what is a real man? We have to understand what we are actually looking for in a partner for life if we are interested in that that route. And if that's not for you and you just want to have a good time or enjoy yourself, great, enjoy yourself. But if you want a committed person who shows up for you as loyal, you got to find someone who shows up for you and is loyal. It doesn't matter how much money they make or or what, you know, how manly they are. If they if you feel loved, if you feel cared for, if you feel respected, if you feel there's trust and honesty, that's what creates a long-lasting relationship. So if you want it, go for it. You can't have one way and then complain about the other way isn't there. You know what I mean? A lot of a lot of us have anxiety in relationships. And yeah. I know for me growing up, and I've talked about this a lot, as I started to navigate young adulthood and starting to navigate relationships, it was very anxiety producing because I started to have these feelings of what if he's not calling me? Why is he not calling me back in a certain amount of time? Is he going to leave me? Oh my God. And it was all of these abandonment issues and rejection issues that would come up to me, come up for mm -hmm. me. And 
when I started learning about attachment styles and understanding, at first I thought I had an anxious attachment style for the longest time. And Mm -hmm. I actually more recently really think that I was dealing more with a disorganized attachment. I kind of had Mm -hmm. a mix of the avoidant and Mm -hmm. a mix of the anxious and it blew my mind. You guys, when I tell you, you have to learn about your attachment styles when it comes to dating because the history of your childhood is directly mm. related to the types of partners that you pick. What are your thoughts on that? Because this kind of stuff blows my mind. And I would I know that this is what you do. So tell me about what is the connection with our childhood and the partners that we picked and how can we alleviate some of that anxiety if we're starting to feel that with dating and relationships? Mm. So I love that you said that. I'm going to I'm going to go along with my brand which is no BS with lots of compassion. I'm going to be a little sassy for a second. I love that people love attachment styles and it is such a good backdrop for us understanding ourselves. The one caveat before I get into what it can be is don't rely too heavy on attachment styles as the reason or love languages, the reason for issues in a relationship as much as basic simple things about relationship truths. Like so, I, I hear people all the time like, oh, my love – they don't know my love language. I have this attachment style. But like you guys don't care about each other, love each other, and trust each other. Like that's more important than the love language and attachment style. Attachment style could actually give a good reasoning behind why you're not dealing with the base foundation of the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. So attachment style is a beautiful thing. It's so funny that it's been around since the 50s and 60s with John Bowlby. And for some reason, it's getting like this huge resurgence in the past 10 years of like it being such an iconic thing when it's been part of the research for many years. When it comes to attachment style, how we are raised, the relationship we have with our close circle gives us a model or a blueprint to how we are relating to other people and how we want to be related to. And if we're not aware of how that shows up in our worlds, We struggle with that acceptance in our brain of what we're used to, to what we might need. If I grew up in a chaotic household, I might feel comfortable in a chaotic relationship, but for some reason it never works out and we get so surprised because chaotic relationships don't last, but it's what I feel comfortable to do because I've been used to it as a kid. Those are the things, whether it's talked to a certain way, treated a certain way, Um, spoken to a certain way, a certain environment of a home or a relationship. When it comes to attachment styles, it can help really color and give us some backdrop to why I might fall into certain patterns of relationships that keeps occurring. And the biggest thing is to have awareness of what my patterns are, what keeps coming up. You know, there, there's a lot of work that we have to do individually and how we show up to a relationship devoid of the other person. If I am okay or I'm solid or I have a good foundation coming into a relationship, I can be more aware of the issues that come up. I can be more in tune to the things that are needed from me and from my person. And I also won't give into some crap that keeps happening in relationships because I'm solid. You're not right for me. You're not good for me. You don't fill my standards because I've done the work. So attachment styles can give us that backdrop of awareness to know what work we should or can do and what directions we can take to be better for ourselves, to be the best in a relationship. And it's always a struggle, even if you got that down. You know what I mean? It's always a struggle. So for somebody like me, 
Let's just, I always use myself as an example because I am nowhere near perfect and I am still working on my, my shit. And I'm very, very aware that in my past, I had some really, really strong anxious tendencies. I think as I got older, some of my attachment styles started to change. I almost mm. would say like I have avoidant tendencies now, but I'm much more secure, but it's really going to be tested when I get into a relationship because I've been single yeah. for a long time. And during that time is when I've done the most growth. So for somebody who is like me now, they're starting to date again. Let's say they mm -hmm. meet somebody and they're going through this new relationship and or dating and these feelings of panic or oh shit, or these feelings of somebody taking over their space in their mind and not being able to focus on other things. And that anxiety is really starting to drive them. What do they do? What are some tools that we can use when we are starting to explore the dating or relationship realm, knowing that we have these tendencies, but we want to change them? I love that you're, um, you, this would be great. I'm so excited you asked that question. <laughs> I think it's like a three part, a three parter level. I think the first thing is what you're talking about was a, is awareness, right? The first thing is be aware that this might be a pattern that's happening. It doesn't mean it's a red flag or that you need to run. It could be that you are aware that when you get into real relationships, things get a little rocky. Second is embrace the feelings versus running away or avoiding them. I need to the, the, be curious, which is awareness, and embrace it, which means listen to it. It is your alarm system. Now, sometimes your alarm system might go off not in a way that's helpful. So I need to embrace it and understand it. And the third thing is speak up and talk to your partner. Voice your concerns in a calm, clear way. But you first have to understand what's bugging you. If you don't understand what's bugging you or you're aware of what's bugging you and you just word vomit on somebody, it's going to overwhelm them just as much as you feel overwhelmed in that anxious state. So if it's how you feel you want to be connected with, if it means how you want to be spoken to, how often you want to be spoken to, the, the standard that you feel you deserve to be respected in a relationship, how someone treats you, all those things are super key that need to be talked about in a relationship. So talk about it, but be aware about where it's coming from, embracing those feelings that it's okay. It's just a part of the process. It doesn't mean something's wrong with me or something's wrong with the relationship. It's my natural tendencies to feel this way. It's where my brain might go, but it doesn't mean that has to define me. I choose where that alarm system takes me. So if I, you have to, it's the idea of embracing the control that you have over yourself. Your mind makes up these beautiful, yet sometimes ridiculous scenarios and thought processes. That's great. Aware, embrace, be curious with it, listen to it, write it down and speak up to someone who either your partner who actually can help with it or a therapist who can give you objectivity or a really close friend who is just n not going to code, you know, sugarcoat it, but going to give you the straight, honest truth. Yeah. You know, Ellie, you're getting into the pattern again. You did this the last girlfriend. You did this the last person. I think it's you. Or yeah, you know, I saw that also, you know, that is something maybe you should talk to them about. I noticed that as well right? Just have that other sounding board because sometimes your sounding board of yourself is not always so trustworthy. It's why I'm a huge proponent of journaling. I've been journaling for years, not every day because that's not sustainable or possible. I, I journal when I feel necessary, 
And sometimes the journaling, even though I have terrible handwriting and I sometimes can't read what I wrote, Same. when I'm able to, it's just, it's like chicken scratch. Yeah. When I look back at it and I read it sometimes the next day, I'm able to gain some objectivity because the sounding board is not in my head. It's now on the piece of paper that I now am removed from. So I can look at it and go, oh, now I know why I felt that in that moment, but now I don't feel that way. I wonder what's changed. Or I wonder why I felt that way. I get curious with it versus judgment. If we come with it and we get you know, aware of it, but we start judging ourselves, we're damned. We're damned in the situation because we are now beating ourselves up for thinking and feeling, which just happens every freaking day, all the time. So we have to stop going to judgment with our anxieties about relationships because relationships are so freaking hard. You're dealing with another person, their mind, their life, all their things, and your own stuff. Mm-hmm. It's difficult. It's why I love love. It's why I love being a relationship therapist. It's why I love doing what I do because it is so difficult. And my job is to help simplify it and keep people grounded in what's actually happening versus what their brain might be telling them. Did you guys know that I'm not only a therapist, but I'm also a coach and a professional tarot reader. Now, it's not exactly me hovering over a crystal ball telling your future. It's a way to connect with your guides on life issues such as career and love and spirituality. And sometimes people need one-on-one coaching to help them through breakups, toxic relationships, healing the mother wound, their spiritual path, or navigating tools as an empath. So I do all of these things to help my clients pursue life and decisions and understand themselves. So if you are interested in one-on-one coaching or a tarot reading, click the link below to get started. Okay, back to the podcast. Yeah, I think that too, it's, you have to remember your body sometimes is going into overdrive because it doesn't necessarily know how to calm down. So if you were constantly looking, like for me, I was always in an environment, scanning my environment for safety, whether it was like, is my mom pissed off? Is she going to yell at me? Am I going to, you know, get dragged through the kitchen by my hair today? Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like constant chaos. And then even in my life as a teenager, there was always chaotic energy around me. So my nervous system was constantly in fight or flight. So whenever I would get into a relationship and, you know, even in my marriage and, and a previous relationship before that, the littlest hint of unsafety of you might abandon me, you will abandon me or X, Y, and Z may happen. My nervous system panicked. Mm -hmm. And that would look like for me feeling overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I would ruminate about the relationship or the what ifs or when's he going to call or how come he hasn't called me. Now, I will say that 99% of the time, I was right, because my nervous system was truly picking up on an unsafe relationship. Mm -hmm. But because I was seeking out those toxic relationships, not consciously, unconsciously, but it was always a relationship that wasn't good. And there's a quote from the book attached that I really like, especially for anxious attachment, um, people that say you're only What does the quote say? You're only your knee, you're only as needy as your unmet needs, Mm, meaning that when you can find a partner who's secure, those unmet needs will no longer trigger you as much. And you can be a little bit more secure in the relationship. Um, I feel like that's what people need to seek more out, but it's that understanding first. Mm-hmm. For, for you, I want to kind of go into anxiety in general, because there's a lot of people who suffer from generalized anxiety And I'm torn between that because I do feel like on one hand, does it exist? Absolutely. But I feel like our environment 
causes a lot of the anxieties that we feel. What are your thoughts on anxiety? What does somebody have to look for? And what what's your take on it? Anxiety in general, I think is, um, you know, the, the, the stress that gets to a point that is so overwhelming that we can't function the way we hope. There's a difference between stress and anxiety. Stress happens every day. Something is, is frustrating, an external thing. Anxiety is internal, where we are just on hyperdrive or hypersensitivity, hyperawareness. We are just going, going, going within our minds. Do I think that anxiety is real? A thousand percent. Do I think that our environment helps? No, I do not. It's why I moved from New York to Vegas, right? The environment of New York for my family, my wife, and my kids was not something that was conducive to me being okay and them being okay. I struggle with anxiety. I take medication. I got no shame in that. But like I had a massive panic attack when my daughter was born because I didn't know how to process my feelings. I didn't know how to process and deal with stress at a starter point without getting it to the point of it overwhelming me. And it hit a peak and it overwhelmed me to the point where I had a panic attack. I think anxiety is something that we, a lot of people today deal with because our world is demanding us to be on all the time. Whether it's technology, whether it's our jobs, whether it's our friends, whether it's social media, whether it's all the things around us pushing and pulling us to perform, to do, to go. I just posted yesterday, I think, the opposite of anxiety is not calm. The opposite of anxiety is being present, right? It's not about being calm. I can be the most relaxed, but inside I'm everywhere else. My mind is not present. I'm so worried about what might happen, the whys, the what ifs, the who's, the where's, ruminating, overthinking, underthinking, everything to the point where I'm not being present in this moment. And I think our world is very hard to be present, whether it's all the pings or the reminders on my, my app, my, you know, my Apple watch, or, you know, my family needs this, or my friends need that. We have so much access to so much that the environment's not so great. It's why, by the way, I think for some people, COVID was really healing. Mm-hmm. because it was quiet. They were by themselves isolated in, in a good way, as well as COVID was eye-opening for a lot of people that they had to look themselves in the mirror and go, holy crap, I'm not doing okay. Yeah. Um, and that was a very interesting thing that happened. But I think if we try our best to, to learn to create presence with our mind and ourselves and and learn to be still and just be versus all the other things that get pulled in many directions, I think we would be a lot less anxious. It doesn't mean it won't go away. And it doesn't mean that medication solves it either, right? Medication can only help certain things, certain people. I'm I'm a proponent for medication for the right person. I don't think everyone needs to be on medication, but sometimes we have to be honest with ourselves about our lifestyle, our life choices, our past, our presence, and what it makes us feel and how we feel, and what have we not dealt with. I always make this like metaphor and joking and and joke about therapy. As a therapist, my job is like an organizer of someone's mind, where I help them sometimes just look at, sometimes they're not ready to deal with their stuff. So we stand at the closet going, okay, I'm going to go in there. We're going to go in there soon. And sometimes it's going in the closet, opening up and seeing what the mess is, what's organized, what's not organized, where things fit, 
And sometimes it's taking clothes out, saying thank you and burning it to the ground and starting over again, or even just folding things and putting them in another drawer or looking at it and going, do I like this? Does it suit me anymore? Does it serve me? Do I really wear this? And kind of organizing that way. But sometimes we don't deal with that or even look at the closet because everyone's got stuff. Everyone's got anxiety. Everyone's got stress about work, about life, about family. It's a hard, it's hard to be human. And we have to accept that sometimes it's hard to be human. So Ellie, if I came to you as your patient and let's say I said, I'm dealing with anxiety every day. What are some solid protocols that I can implement in my life, big or small, that I can work on the anxiety that I'm feeling, whether it's with my kids, with my home, with my life, what are some things that are within my control that I can do to help alleviate some of these feelings? So the first I was like, what are you anxious about? We have to start with what's going on. Oh, let's what? say career yeah. and career and being a mom. Okay. Love those things. So let's go with career, right? What, what pressure is it? It's all about pressure. It's pressure to do what pressure to feel like, I know I feel anxiety about my career. And to me, it's feeling worth, worth it, that I'm doing enough to be worth it. That's the honest truth, right? Does someone validate and see me for the hard work that I'm doing? Um, for me, career pressure is, am I making enough money to pay my bills? Mm-hmm. You know, now no therapist can solve that stress. No one, no therapist can solve all your anxieties because I'm not in your life and I'm not paying your bills. But if you're anxious about paying bills, can you do something that gets you extra money? Are you in the right career that gives you that lifestyle balance of fulfillment and money to live by? If you can't, that's something that's not in your control. And that's the mistake is that we think we can control things and Part of the anxiety work is learning where I can control and where it's really not in my control, but it doesn't mean that I'm out of control. Just because I can't control my job doesn't mean I'm out of control. I can control how I respond to a situation. I can control how I take care of myself. And to me, it's looking at someone's life, their schedule, their sleep, how they eat, a holistic full approach to someone to see where we can fit you and your control of your life in a way that feels balanced. And I like to use this word self full, right? So selfish is all, all me, hundred percent selfless is 0% me self full is balance where I can find myself as well as the other things that matter in my life, depending on the situation, you know, kids are probably 80, 20, you know, 80, them 20% you work, you know, depending on what your job is, but it really is about understanding and listening to your anxiety. I say this often and you look at all the experts and the work that people are out there on anxiety. Anxiety and stress is a is a uh, alarm system telling you that something needs to be paid attention to. It doesn't mean that something needs to be changed. It means that your mind and body is going, hey, are you listening? This is really important. You should pay attention. So we have to listen and pay attention to what our anxiety is bringing out. What are we focusing on more when it comes to parenting? Yeah, what are you anxious about when it comes to parenting? Your kid's safety? So make sure they're safe. Are you worried about them being successful? You could be the best parent in the world and they can be not successful. You could be the worst parent in the world and they can be extremely successful. You have no control over that, right? Like this morning, something just happened with my daughter this morning. She had a struggle. She didn't want to go to school because of a friend of hers in class is hurting her feelings. 
it breaks my heart that I can't make her feel better. Oh, poor thing. I already feel bad. Right? <laughs> right? It breaks my heart that I can't Aww. make her feel better, but I have no control over that. All I can do is make her feel loved, tell her that I love her, talk to her school, talk to the parents. After that, I can't control this kid or my daughter. She has to figure it out. So what am I stressed about when it comes to parenting? Is it that I don't feel good enough? Is that I hope I'm not like my parents? What is all that stuff? So a lot of therapy is diving into that deep well of why, what, and how can I show up then within that why and what to, we can go with like CBT of reframing and re, re or acceptance of what you can and can't do in your life and really working hard to be okay with that and live with it the best way possible. Like I have a friend, like my best friend, Christy, I always talk about her. So she knows Go Christy. on the podcast. <laughs> she's my most resourceful friend, but you know, she's in her forties. She'll kill me for saying that out loud, but she looks damn good, but she's got two toddlers and she was one of those people. She had kids late in life and they drive her fucking nuts. They drive her nuts because she's in a house full of men. She's got her husband. He's great. Kyle, shout out to you. But you know, her, her kids drive her crazy. So for somebody like her, that's saying like, listen, it's not about, I'm not worried about my kid's safety. I'm not worried about that, but they, they make me anxious because they're stressing me the fuck out. <laughs> what do we so say that's, to those so, parents? So those that's kids? not anxiety. That's just being, that's being burnt out and, and overstimulated mm -hmm. as a parent. Yeah. Right. Those are, those are very different things. Right. So I feel that way too. I got a one and a half year old and a four year old. They make, sometimes my day is nuts because of them, but I love them to pieces and I wouldn't change it because I love them and they, they, I'm obsessed with them, but it doesn't mean that I need to learn where I fit in, mm -hmm. in the day where I need to look, focus on myself to decompress, to ask for help, to get away, to, to talk to someone mm -hmm. who maybe can give me tips on how to deal with their stuff that by me working with them and working on myself, they'll be better. I'll be better. And I can deal with their stuff better. But usually, by the way, just a rule of thumb, when our kids trigger and push our buttons, it's usually because there's something going on inside that we're facing. I think kids are the biggest mirror for us and our issues, mm -hmm. which I hate to say because it sucks sometimes when I like get like face to face with my issues. And I hate doing that. But it's a true thing that when your kids push a button, and you're like, and you're like all angry. Why are you angry? Your kid's just like, you know, doing something. They're three. They're two. Mm -hmm. Why are you angry at them? It's what it, it's your stuff coming out. Mm -hmm. So it's working on yourself and all that kind of stuff. But overwhelmed as a parent is every parent. Burnt out as a parent is every parent. Overstimulated is every parent because it's so freaking hard. Mm -hmm. But it means that I need to learn to find those spots where I can be me. I can find me. I can listen to me. I can decompress. I can reconnect with myself or my partner have a good time or enjoy my life without that defining my entire day and my entire life. That's why I'm a big proponent of sending kids to school. Amen. Right. I'm not a big fan of homeschooling, not because it's bad for the kid, but like you freaking need a break. Mm -hmm. And like it's glorified babysitting. Now, of course, if you don't agree with the school and all those things and fine, do do you. But like there are people in the community that I live in that like the mom is so overwhelmed because she watches two of her kids at home by herself. That's not fair. It's torturous. And she like can barely function afterwards because she's so done. Mm -hmm. And it's not that her kids are bad. It's not that they're misbehaved. It is just a lot. 
So I urge people, like, send your kids to daycare as early as possible. So when you have extra time in your day and someone doesn't show up or you're in your job and you have an extra half an hour, you can just sit. Mm-hmm. It's hard being a parent. Yes, it is. Being, it's hard being a parent. It's hard being a mom. There is no rule book that says this is what you're supposed to do. You have to figure your shit out as you go. And sometimes you can feel like such a minority and so alone because you are literally giving, 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 you need this, you need that. What can I do to take care of you? And at the end of the day, a lot of moms tend to neglect themselves because they're so busy taking care of everyone around them. And if you can't take care of you, you're not going to be able to show up for the people in your life at the 100%. Your your cup is not going to be filled. You're going to be running on a half a cup, an empty cup, or or nothing at all. And so you have to get to a point where you're able to do something in the day that is strictly for you and only you, because otherwise Mm -hmm. you're going to lose your mind. (laughs) I literally say this all the time, but I'll say it again. If you can't find, and I mean this with all my heart, If you can't find 15 to 20 minutes in a day for you, you have a massive problem and you need to look at your schedule. You need to reassess your life. If you can't find 15 to 30 minutes, what is going on? What's happening? I mean, my kids go to bed by the time they go to sleep and all the things, let's say eight o'clock, everything's done by eight o'clock from eight till when I go to sleep. I am, you know, helping clean up and doing things around the house to get ready for the next day. But there better be 30 minutes before I go to bed where I have for me, whether that means watching my favorite TV show, journaling, reading, there better be an hour or two. Mm-hmm. When I, and that's why when, when parents don't create a good habit for their kids to go to sleep at an earlier time, and I hear parents, my kid doesn't go to sleep till 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Where the hell do you fit in? What are you supposed to do? You're not going to bed till one, two o'clock. You're freaking tired and you got to do it all over again. Mm -hmm. Be smart. Be cognizant of your time. Don't just doom scroll or just scroll online forever. Mm -hmm. If you have time, take advantage of it. If it means getting a Peloton or a SoulCycle bike that you can work out for 20 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. If it means if you can't get to the gym because you don't have that much time. If it means, you know, taking a walk. If it means just spending quality time and buying a stupid card game or board game. I just brought, bought Rummy Cub for my wife and I to play at night if we ever want because like she crushes me. I suck at games. She's so much better <laughs> than me at games. But it's like just a connector for 15, 20 minutes. just the two of us. Mm-hmm. You better find 15 to 30 minutes. If you don't, something's really wrong with your life. I mean that with all the love in my heart. Look at your life and adjust. Yeah. And I think too, especially for those people who are in a relationship and married and have kids, it's so important to get that intimate time. Like you got to find some time or yeah, or you're not going to be able to build on that. I want to switch gears and talk about sleep routine because, you know, we're talking about how a lot of people endlessly scroll. A lot of people deal with anxiety at night. And I hear this so often from people that they are not able. As a matter of fact, I was just having this conversation with one of the girls that I dance with that she's not able to fall asleep. She's tried everything from medication to melatonin to, mm-hmm. you know, trying to meditate at night. She's done all of the things that are supposed to be done on paper, but her mind just continues to ruminate. But when I ask questions of, do you get morning sun? What are you doing before you go to bed? Are you watching TV? You know, those things I think take 
into a bigger account. So as somebody who works in the field of anxiety, what do you tell your patients or what do you suggest, especially for those that are having a hard time falling asleep at night or who have ruminating thoughts before they go to bed? So I have a few, a few ideas. First of all, your bedtime uh, routine is not just so that you can go to bed. It is a trigger for your mind sending messages that it's time to go to bed. So that means, you know, I would start a bedtime routine an hour before you want to go to bed. And that could be shower, bath, brushing your teeth, all those hygiene things, getting changed, you know, getting into your bed, right? Reading, all quiet, calm things. Now, I'll be honest, I don't always do that, but I don't have a hard time sleeping for the most part. And when I do, it's the worst. It's the worst thing ever when you can't sleep. Mm-hmm. So if you cannot sleep, even with a routine, and you're ruminating, I'm a very big proponent of something called brain dumping. When you get trapped in a ruminating cycle or chaotic tornado in your brain, you are basically using your brain as the fodder for the other thoughts. It is continuously going and building off of each other. So if I can take all those thoughts and throw it somewhere else, that's why having a journal or a pad next to your next to your bed can be very helpful just to write everything down so you're not building off of it and the anxiety thought to build to an anxiety thought to build to an anxiety thought you are building off of objectivity of seeing the anxious thinking and not being something trapped in your head so one i would say brain dump two it's a very big thing regarding your cell phone or technology that stuff keeps your mind awake mm-hmm just by nature of the light, the sounds, all those things keep it awake. So read, quiet your brain, read or listen to music. Now, if those things don't work, you know, melatonin is always great or, you know, I'm not here pushing drug use, but if you need, you know, hydroxyzine, which is a great medication prescribed for anxiety and helps with sleep, it's basically like an antihistamine It's like a, it's a um, or even some THC, if that's your thing, just to calm your mind, calm your body. Also, I would add, maybe you need to move. So what I mean by that is moving your body. People who There's research that shows that people who move and work out more, their bodies need sleep. So their bodies are more in, in line with going to sleep because they've used their body. They've let the stuff out of their head. Maybe try to throw that in at nighttime if it fits your schedule just to calm down and relax. Those are the basic things I would say to someone. Um, Of course, if I'm working with someone, I would dive into what the thoughts are to analyze them and kind of break them apart and rip them, you know, you know, rip them apart and kind of deal with those, those thoughts of what's trapping their mind. For some people, it's like, oh my gosh, I have so many things to do tomorrow. So write down a to-do list. Mm -hmm. Why do you have to keep remembering it? Don't rely on that. Write it down. So you don't have to keep going, oh my gosh, I got to do this, got to call that, I got to do this, got to, and you're going through it back and forth and put it out somewhere, put it down, mm-hmm. brain dump it. You know, you took care of it. You don't need to, and you remind yourself, I don't need to do this. It's already done. I don't need to remember it. It's already taken care of. Oh my gosh, I have to set a timer. Okay, set a timer. I have to call my best friend. Put down the reminders. I got to call my best friend tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Utilize um, your, the, your surroundings 
to be able to uh, do that as well. Some people like weighted pillows, weighted blankets, you know, as like a like a compression thing to feel good. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to get a dog and just cuddle with a dog at night, you know. I'm a big proponent of animals uh, as well. Um, all those little things can be very helpful. You got to find your self-care, your sleep time routine that works for you. Not for me, for you. Yeah, I agree. There's a, um, I always talk about this uh, author that I love, Johan Hari. He's written two amazing books, one called Stolen Focus um, and the other book, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but everything that he talks about, especially with the book Stolen Focus, when it comes to ADHD, you would love that book, by the way. And he really it's on talks my list about- to read. Oh, he's amazing. And the research that he he interviews countless people that are at the top of their fields in this research. And one of the key takeaways that I think he discovered from both books focusing on depression and ADHD, and you know, that always trickles into anxiety, is that our environment plays such a big role on our psyche, on our anxiety, on depression, on ADHD, and how we react to these triggers and how we react to our environment. Mm -hmm. And we're in an environment now where for the first time in history, we have everything at our disposal at the click of a button. I want to buy it, swipe. I want to date that person, swipe. I want to order that, swipe. It's literally easy to get everything like this. Mm -hmm. And that triggers our brains in such different ways that we want everything to be done right now. And I think about that and it's no wonder why anxiety is at an all time high. It's no wonder why ADHD is running rampant in our society. We literally are teaching ourselves to do this stuff because we want everything with instant gratification. And I think Mm -hmm. that if we look at our environment what are we doing every day? Are we on our phone? How much time are we spending? Are we getting morning sun? Are we connecting with people in person, not just mm-hmm. online? Are we, do we have a support system? Are we going out with friends? Are we getting out in nature? And I think that for a lot of people, if you look at these things, there are things in your environment that can be changed to help. And of course, there are some situations where I feel like there are some people who just genetically and are dealing with things that they have no control over. And I think in Mm -hmm. those cases, you know, there are really heavy cases like that. But I do think that our environment plays a big, big role. For you, what would be the one key takeaway for you if you were to give advice to anyone out there that was struggling with anxiety? Mm -hmm. One, I would say, stop judging yourself and being so hard on yourself. You're struggling. That's okay. A lot of people have anxiety, myself included, at different times in different ways. You're not alone in that. So speak up. Talk to your friends. Don't be alone in the struggle because you're not alone in real life with the struggle. Everyone's dealing with it in some fashion or another. The second thing I would say is get help. You should not be dealing with it alone. So talk to somebody, whether it's a therapist, whether it's a coach, someone who is listening to you, who has your back and cares for you because you need the help. It is not weak to need the help. There's nothing wrong with you for needing the help. We all need support. No one can go through life alone. We have to stop trying to do it alone and being so strong and big. No, be human. The third thing I would say is you are going to be okay. I heard this a while ago by someone that when you're in the valley and you're struggling, stop 
pitching a house. Pitch a tent. It's it. Life will move. You will evolve. You will grow. Right now, in the valley of the struggle, of the pain, of the suffering, it feels like it will last forever, but nothing lasts forever, not even our own lives. So pitch a tent. Make it something that can move because you move through life and you evolve through life. So why should your struggle be something that holds you down into one place? Keep growing. Keep fighting for yourself because it's worth it and you deserve to fight for yourself to be better. Those would be the three things I would say to someone. Ellie, thank you for your knowledge and for continuing to show up and do the work that you do. I know it's a lot of work in terms of being a healer, a therapist, a podcaster, and doing everything that you're doing behind the scenes. We don't get enough of those thank yous. And for also, you know, representing men and and showing up and showing other men that, hey, it's okay to get help. It's okay to show your emotions. It's okay to be authentically human. We're all the same in many, many ways. So thank you for your continued just work in this field. I do want to ask you for those that are listening and they want to get in contact with you. I know that you live in Nevada. Is that the only state that you're working with in terms of clients? Do you do coaching and how can people reach out? So I'm licensed in Nevada and New York. So if you want to go through insurance and go through that system, then yes, I'm, I'm licensed in those two states. But I do coaching case-to-case uh, -case basis depending on the needs and, and wants of the person. That's a conversation between me and that person and how I, you know, how I can see if I can help them. Please reach out, Ellie Weinstein, LCSW.com. My Instagram is Ellie Weinstein underscore LCSW. Please reach out. If I can help you, I will do my best to try to find something or someone who might be able to. Um, don't be shy ask your questions, speak up, talk, reach out. It takes a lot of courage to reach out. So please do it. Um, and yeah, those are the places to find me. And I appreciate you having me on the show and uh, creating amazing, un unbelievable conversations with such wonderful human beings and all the, the realness and honesty that you create in the world of uh, wellness and health. It's amazing. Thanks, Ellie.